Welcome to the Stoyas podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. As part of our continuing examination of the interconnections between Spain and Africa, today I'm joined by Eric Calderwood, an associate professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, to discuss his new book, On Earth or in Poems, The Many Lives of Al-Andalus, which is just out with Harvard University Press. Back in episode 30, we had Professor Calderwood on the program to discuss the influence of the idea of Al-Andalus, the 700 years of Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula, on the shaping of both Spanish and Moroccan national identities. Today, he returns to take a look at the multifaceted uses of this idea of Al-Andalus in contemporary artistic expressions in the Iberian Peninsula, North Africa, the Middle East, and beyond. In the second half of the episode, we'll be taking a look at some musical selections in particular that incorporate this idea. So Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Foster. I'm really happy to be here and I'm excited to have another chance to speak with you. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you back. So in this first half, I'd like to provide listeners with an overview of some of the ideas in your book, perhaps inspiring them to turn to the book itself for more detail. Specifically, you distinguish five different conceptions of Al-Andalus, the Arab, Berber, feminist, Palestinian, and harmonious. So let's take a look at each of these in turn. Now, first of all, the Arab. That is to say, how does that idea of Al-Andalus, how has that been used to assert a pan-Arab identity? And what have been some of the consequences of that approach? Yeah, thanks for that question. I guess I should start off by defining one of the terms I'm going to be using throughout this conversation, uh, which is Al-Andalus. I assume that that's a term that's familiar for some of your listeners, uh, but just so everyone's on the same page, uh, when I say Al-Andalus, I'm referring to Muslim Iberia. So in other words, those parts of the Iberian Peninsula, today Spain and Portugal, that were under Muslim rule from 711 to 1492. But I should say that my book is not, in fact, a history of Al-Andalus, but is instead a history of the different ways in which Al-Andalus has been imagined and deployed in contemporary culture. So really what the book, the driving question of the book is, what does Al-Andalus do? What is the political and social work that Al-Andalus has made possible in different contexts uh, in the modern period, roughly from the late 19th century to the present, which is the period I'm talking about in the book. And what I tried to do in the book is, rather than organizing the study around different national contexts, I try to identify different uses or meanings that have become attached to Al-Andalus over time. And in particular, different collective identities or ideological projects that have imagined themselves as in some way reviving or continuing the legacy of Al-Andalus. So that takes me to the question that you were just asking, like, what is this thing that I'm calling the era of Al-Andalus? Mm -hmm. Well, in that chapter, I'm trying to look at the long tradition of writers and public figures and artists who have described Al-Andalus as predominantly an Arab or Arabic phenomenon rather than a Muslim one. That is to say, they've understood Al-Andalus predominantly in ethnic or linguistic terms rather than religious ones. So this is um, a way of thinking about Al-Andalus that has centered on Arabness as a cultural identity and historically has tried to link the legacy of Al-Andalus to the legacy of the Arab heartlands in the Middle East, and in particular to Syria. 
if we kind of are going to draw a map of this little Andalus, it's the Andalus that imagines the access from Umayyad, uh, Damascus. So Damascus was the capital of the Umayyad Caliphate in Syria to Umayyad Cordoba, because the Umayyads uh, ruled Al-Andalus for the first centuries of its existence. So what happens in this book is that every time I come across a new way of talking about Al-Andalus, it's usually a way that celebrates some people, so it kind of rises up some groups, and often does so by excluding or sidelining other groups. So a lot of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is figure out, okay, which is the Al-Andalus that's being talked about in this context? And whom does that Andalus serve? And perhaps for whom is that Al-Andalus doing a disservice? So in this case, the idea of Al-Andalus being predominantly a place for thinking about Arabness, that is a vision that historically has served to animate and celebrate pan-Arab identity. So uh, Arabs of different faiths, particularly Muslim and Christians, but often at the exclusion of other groups that contributed to Andalusian culture. And I'm thinking particularly of North Africans. Very often in, in this vision that I'm calling the Arab Al-Andalus, the heroes of the stories are the Arabs who brought Umayyad Arab culture to the Iberian Peninsula, and the bad guys are very often uh, North Africans, and in particular North African Berbers, or the indigenous people of North Africa. Very often in this vision that I'm calling the Arab Al-Andalus, Al-Andalus basically ends in the 11th century with the collapse of the Umayyad dynasty and really with the arrival of the North African dynasties, the Amoravids and the Amohads. For many, that is seen as kind of a beginning of decline of Al-Andalus. Um, so again, the Arab Al-Andalus, a vision of Al-Andalus centered on the idea of Arabness uh, and very often one that excludes or even openly vilifies North Africans. Yeah, thank you for that uh, overview. And uh, that was one of the things that really surprised me in the book. And so I wanted to ask you about, I could say a little more about the, the Berbers or the indigenous people of North Africa in particular, because I think they don't fit easily into that idea of an Arab Al-Andalus that you um, were describing. But I understand that they've also kind of appropriated this term for themselves. So how have they done that to reinforce their own sense of identity? Yeah, so that's that's exactly right. So in the first chapter of the book, The Arab Al-Andalus, I try to signal the ways in which uh, that's actually a longstanding idea, like the Arabness of Al-Andalus is one of the ideas that actually can kind of be traced back to things that people in Al-Andalus said about their own identity. But I'm really interested in the modern reemergence of this idea and the ways in which Arabizing Al-Andalus, to put it that way, served a certain generation or kind of generations of Arab intellectuals and artists starting in the 19th century and on into the 21st century. And as I was saying, very often, uh, just to take one example, I'm thinking of like a novelist like Georges Zedan, who wrote, uh, uh, he's a Lebanese novelist who lived in Cairo and wrote several important historical novels about Al-Andalus at, at the turn of the century. And the heroes of his novels are always Arabs, and the enemies or the bad guys are almost always uh, North Africans. And so as you can imagine, and this is coming to your question, um, North African readers and scholars might bristle at this particular understanding of Al-Andalus. They might bristle at the idea that North Africa is somehow the antithesis of Al-Andalus, whereas the heart of Al-Andalus resists elsewhere in the Arab East or in the Mushrik. And in fact, in chapter two, which I call the Berber Al-Andalus, it's, kind of, it's kind of a companion piece to chapter one, in which I try to show the other side of the coin, namely uh, efforts over roughly the last century 
by North African writers and intellectuals and public figures to try to recuperate and reassess and celebrate the unique contributions of North Africans to the formation of Al-Andalus. And this is really a process that I say, like in the chapter I talk about it, is unfolding in two waves. So in the first wave, starting in the 1930s, you have members of the Moroccan nationalist movement, many of whom were Arab-identifying, Arabic-speaking intellectuals, often from urban environments, but were well aware of the tendency in European and Middle Eastern accounts to discount North African contributions to Andalus. You see this generation of Moroccan nationalists who weigh in and they try to basically revive and celebrate the contributions of several significant Berber figures in the history of Al-Andalus. And in particular, they're interested in reviving the reputation of the Almohads and, and the Almoravids. Uh, I should say that the other, other way, the Almoravids and the Almohads. So two North African dynasties that ruled Al-Andalus from roughly the, the late 11th century into the middle of the 13th century. So mm-hmm. in the kind of in the version of the story that I'm calling the Arab Al-Andalus, the Almoravids and the Almohads are very often the kind of nadir of Andalusi history. If the Umayyads are the height, the Almohads are kind of a, a dour, sometimes they're described as fanatical, foreign uh, element that, that kind of comes in and, and destroys the beautiful, refined culture that the Umayyads had created. And this is the vision of the story that you get in a lot of European and Middle Eastern accounts. And really, the more, more Moroccan nationalists try to really celebrate everything that the Almoravids and the Almohads contributed to, to Al-Andalus and try to basically re-envision those moments of Almoravid and Almohad rule, not only as golden ages of splendor, but also as ages in which Al-Andalus and today's Morocco were united in one single territory that was in fact ruled from the south. So in this way, in that chapter, I'm kind of trying to show what I describe as an Andalus from below, both in the sense that it's an Andalus geographically from the south, and it's also an Andalus from the perspective of people who have historically been marginalized or discounted in many Middle Eastern and European accounts, accounts of Andalusian history. Now, mm-hmm. I should say, I talked about the first wave. In, there's a second wave in that chapter, which I'll just mention very, very quickly, because in that first wave, while it is true that Moroccan nationalists were very eager to celebrate North African contributions to Andalus, they very often did so by downplaying the specifically Berber or Amazir identity of, the, of many North African figures and of the Almohad and Almoravid dynasties. Now, I should say, uh, toward the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century, there's been this move around North Africa and in the North African diaspora to kind of demand more official recognition of the unique contributions that Berber or Amazigh peoples have made to North African and Mediterranean history, including Andalusian history. So in this second wave, you see a continued effort to celebrate North African contributions to Al-Andalus. But you see a much more specific emphasis on the ethnic Amazigh identity, or the fact that that many of these figures spoke, didn't speak Arabic or spoke Arabic along with an Amazigh language. So you've seen in recent years a much more specific attempt by many North African intellectuals to propose not just the North African Al-Andalus, or an Al-Andalus anchored in North Africa, but I would say an assertively Berber or Amazigh understanding of, of Andalusian civilization. So that would be kind of how chapter one, the Arab Al-Andalus, chapter two, the Berber Al-Andalus, work side by side to show how Al-Andalus has intersected with debates about race and ethnicity in the Middle East and North Africa. 
And and so that also jumped out at me uh, about your book that you have a whole section on Arab feminists and how they've also been uh, inspired by this idea of Al-Andalus as well, which which also surprised me because, again, they don't seem to have anything to do with each other at first. What has the appeal of Al-Andalus been for feminists in particular? Yeah, so it turns out that Al-Andalus has played a really formative role, or important role in the formation of feminist thought in the Middle East and North Africa, and more broadly, I would say, in Arab and Muslim contexts. Um, I try to tell that story in chapter three of the book, and I sort of pick up uh, in Cairo in the late 19th century when this author named Zainab Fouez, who today is considered a sort of pioneer of Egyptian and Arab feminisms, published this really famous compendium of illustrious women's lives. It's basically a book of biographical sketches about great women across history, and this is a book that's often hailed as a kind of early landmark in feminist histori- historiography in the Middle East. Now, Zainab Fouaz wrote sketches about women from all over the world, but she really gave pride of place to women from the Middle East. And something that's really interesting to me about this work is that no less than, I think, 25 of her bi- uh, biographies are about women from Al-Andalus. Uh, for Zainab Fouaz, like a really significant part of telling this history of women of the Arab world or of the Middle East, or more broadly of women's history, universal women's history, was telling the story of the women of Al-Andalus. And Zainab Fouaz, you know, she's not the only person doing this, but I'd say she's one of the engines that helps to revive this interest in retelling the stories of Andalusian women's lives among uh, Arab and Muslim writers uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, you Mm -hmm. hear me oscillating here between Arab and Muslim, because I would say that these are debates that were sometimes understood through an ethnic lens. That is to say, Al-Andalus sometimes told us something about Arab women, and they were sometimes told through more of a religious lens. That is to say, using the women of Al-Andalus to to say something about women in Islam or Muslim women. Most importantly, though, I think the idea of retelling, kind of recuperating the stories of Andalusian women was a really, really key strategy in trying to establish an an indigenous feminism. That is to say, uh, a a feminist imaginary that was not routed through the history of the feminist movements in Europe and and the United States. You know, the, the, the kind of key point here is that feminism as political project, as discourse, has a pretty fraught history uh, in, in much of the colonized world, inc- including in the Middle East, because women's rights were often used as one of the tools that colonizers uh, would uh, would articulate to uh, justify their colonial projects. The, right. This idea that Europe should colonize the Muslim world in order to save Muslim women. And I see that this move towards towards like in the 19th and early 20th centuries towards reviving the story of Andalusian women's lives is an effort to imagine women in a moment of the rise of imperialism trying to understand their political activism in a way that directly that doesn't directly play to the hands of the colonizers but instead is routed through a cultural history that predates european imperialism and connects them to other arab and muslim women across time like in other ways like zainif was is sort of saying you don't have to import feminism or women's rights to the Arab world because this has always been stitched into the fabric of, of, of our traditions and histories. And so I see this kind of revival in the interest in Andalusian women's lives as part of trying to formulate an indigenous feminism in the Middle East to combat the colonizers' use of feminism and to try to tie 
uh, advocacy for women's rights uh, to a longer history of Arab and Muslim women across time. Um, so really in the in that third chapter, I'm trying to tell the story of how starting in the late 19th century and up into the 21st century, the lives of Andalusi women, be they real lives, because sometimes it's about retelling the story of historical figures, or imagined lives. Sometimes I, I look at fictional works in which people imagine fictional female protagonists in Andalus, that that work is doing something to generate conversations about uh, feminism and about gender and about w women's rights in the Middle East and North Africa. So that's when I, that's the story I'm trying to tell in chapter three. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That that makes a lot of sense why they would use it in that way. And then lastly, I, I have to ask you uh, about another area that was surprising to me that there was a connection, and that is what you call the Palestinian Al-Andalus, because again, uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, at first contemporary pa Palestine doesn't seem to have much to do with the medieval Iberian world. But why is it that modern day Palestinians have been inspired by the other side of the Mediterranean in that way. So yes, there is in fact a really long tradition of writing about Al-Andalus from Palestine and of using Al-Andalus to think about Palestine. In fact, the book's title, my book's title, On Earth or in Poems, comes from a Palestinian poet, a poem. It's a quote from a poem uh, by the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, one of the poems I discuss in the chapter that you're asking about. And I actually came to this topic, the topic of Palestine and Al-Andalus, through Darwish, who's kind of widely considered the most important, certainly one of the most important Palestinian writers of the 20th century. And for anyone who's read Darwish, particularly people who have read Darwish with, coming from a background in, in Iberian studies, um, they'll know, some of your, your listeners might know, that Darwish wove some allusions to Al-Andalus into many of his works. He has some famous poetic works about Al-Andalus. And... When I started reading that stuff in Darwish, I was thinking about how he was using Al-Andalus to reflect on the condition of, conditions of being uh, the condition of being a Palestinian. But I also had just this broader question, which is like, is this part of a broader tradition of Palestinian writing about Al-Andalus, or is Darwish kind of a standalone case? And as I started to dig a little deeper, I discovered that there's actually this really long and varied tradition of writing about Al-Andalus in Palestine. And it's a tradition that dates back at least to the 1920s and 1930s, let's say at least to the period of the British mandate in Palestine, when you see a number of Palestinian writers turn to Andalus as a sort of historical metaphor or model for debating what's happening in Palestine. So I kind of went into that chapter thinking like, how old is this thing, like comparing uh, Andalus to Palestine and has its meaning changed over time? So answer one, it's quite old. Like this, I, this idea that Al-Andalus and Palestine are sisters or are twins that can be read together as kind of part of one historical process. This is an idea that you get in Palestinian writings back to the 1920s. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I found really interesting as I started to dig into that archive is just how varied the uses and meanings of, uh, of Al-Andalus are in Palestinian writing. At first, I assumed that it was a kind of simple, well, Al-Andalus was lost, and so Palestine was lost and occupied, and therefore the two of them are sisters or they're parallels because they're kind of twin stories of loss and occupation. And that's certainly one of the ways in which Palestinian writers have used Al-Andalus to think about Palestine. But it's not the only way. And in fact, like one of the, the arguments I try to make in that chapter is that Al-Andalus has, has proven really productive for thinking about different forms of Palestinian time. 
Some of those forms are nostalgic, as you say, uh, mourning a lost past or a lost homeland. But others are actually much more future-oriented, using Al-Andalus not only to debate the present, but even to imagine the future. In one of his interviews, Mahmoud Darwish, the poet, actually calls Palestine the Andalus of the possible. And the possibility that the Darwish is pointing to there is not the possibility that, that Palestine could become lost, but rather the idea that it could somehow return. So Darwish is really suggesting that the power of Andalus, like the power of Palestine, resides not in the past, but rather in the future, even if that future is not fully articulated. So mm-hmm. ultimately in that chapter, I'm trying to both uncover from an archival sense a long history of Palestinian writing about Al-Andalus, like many of those sources have not been written about in English. And more broadly, I'm trying to show the varied ways in which Palestinians have used Al-Andalus to, to grapple with different parts of Palestinian history. Not only a history of loss and occupation, but also a history of resistance and resilience. Not only a history of thinking about what happened before 1948, but also a history about uh, imagining things could, that could happen in the future. So this, uh, in the end, it's a very Darwishian chapter about using uh, Al-Andalus not only to think about Palestine's past, but also about its present and maybe even about its future. Now that we've identified some of these very varied uses of the concept of uh, Al-Andalus, I want to turn a little more to specifically to some examples of how it's been used in music. I understand that many of these expressions have manifested themselves in collaborations between Spanish and Moroccan musicians. And I just wanted to quote a passage from your book uh, where you say they postulated that popular musical traditions of southern Spain and Morocco share a common origin in Al-Andalus. So what are the origins of these collaborations and how did that idea of having a common musical language emerge? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's sort of the story that I try to tell in the last chapter of the, bo- uh, of the book, or the last chapter of the body for the epilogue, which is called The Harmonious Alignments. And in that chapter, I'm really playing with the idea of harmony in two ways, right? Harmony as in one way of thinking about how sounds can come together, and also harmony to relate it back to one of the most common ideas about alignments, which is this idea of interfaith harmony, or peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And the reason I bring this up is that In recent decades, there have been a number of projects that seek to uh, kind of revive and celebrate the legacy of Al-Andalus through music. And very often these take the form of, as you've said, collaborations between European musicians and Middle Eastern or North African musicians. And although there are a number of examples, in many cases, these are often actually collaborations between Spanish musicians and Moroccan musicians. These are projects, there's there's a kind of boom that happens in the late 20th century, starting in the 1980s, and that has continued into the present day, um, which I think I could refer to very broadly as flamenco fusion projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very often there are attempts to fuse uh, Spanish flamenco music with different forms of North African music, and often the North African music that's called uh, Andalusian music. I can talk more about that in a moment. But really at the heart of these projects are kind of two claims. One, that flamenco music and North African Andalusian music are actually two traditions that come from the same source, which is Al-Andalus. And two, that in combining flamenco and, and North African Andalusian music today, Spanish and Moroccan musicians are not only uh, reviving the legacy of Al-Andalus, but also using that legacy to show some form of intercultural harmony 
in the presence. And so th this is a way in which music is serving the kind of broader goal of interfaith collaboration or intercultural collaboration. So that's kind of the, the, the phenomenon that I'm talking about in that chapter. The chapter does take off in the 1980s, and there's certain reasons why the 1980s are a particularly prominent time. And in particular, mm -hmm. I devote a lot of attention to this work called Makama Honda, uh, that was a collaboration between the Spanish playwright and poet Jose Heredia Maya, uh, who led a group of Spanish musicians who were working in collaboration with a troupe of Moroccan musicians from Tetuan, who were led by Abdesadik Shakara, who is a famous uh, Moroccan uh, violinist and vocalist. And this work, Makama Honda, uh, which was a stage show uh, that was first premiered in 1983, has since spawned all kinds of I don't want to say copies, but it, like there's it's there's it's, there's a long tradition of people who have taken inspiration from this show and have even copied songs from its program or used techniques that were first in, uh, used in the show to practice different forms of flamenco fusion. So we could, in some ways, call 1983 to be a kind of origin point of flamenco fusion projects. But something that I try to do in this in this chapter of the book is show how it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Like a lot of the flamenco fusion projects, including Makama Honda, evoke El Andalus, often even explicitly use lyrics that originated in El Andalus, but they do so by drawing on practices and discourses that are actually of much more recent vintage, and in many cases actually are ones that originated in the context of Spanish colonial Morocco. And so... What I'm trying to do in this uh, in this chapter is show both the ways in which contemporary music practice is reviving and kind of entering into the fray of debates about what Al-Andalus means, but also doing so in such a way where often there's this, this kind of silent intermediate layer in which Spanish colonial history plays a role in how this music was produced and what it, what's the language we have to describe it. I try to kind of trace the history of writings about flamenco and Andalusian music in Spanish colonial Morocco in the chapter. So let's go ahead and play a clip uh, from exactly the show that you were just talking about, the 1983 Espectaculo, as they say in Spanish, Macama Honda. This clip is from right near uh, the end of the show, and it's a few minutes long, so our listeners can sit back a few minutes, and then uh, we'll discuss what we're going to be hearing here.
Okay, so could you tell us um, a little more about this espectacular, what's going on in this show that we took this clip from in particular? Uh, and in this clip, I understand that both Shakara and the famous flamenco singer uh, Enrique Morente were singing poems in, in Arabic and Spanish, uh, respectively. So, so how are they blending those two? Yeah, so uh, first I'll say that the title of this work, uh, Makama Honda, it combines uh, an Arabic word, Makama, with the Spanish word, Honda. Um, the creators translated that to mean something like deep encounter, Hondo uh, being a word from the flamenco lexicon referring to a kind of a quality of sound in flamenco or even an affective state that uh, flamenco is supposed to inspire. Makama is a more challenging term, and I talk about what that means in the book, but just for the sake of simplicity here, I'll, I'll say that the, the, the creators understood that to mean encounter. And really what they're trying to say is that this is a work that's meant to enact some kind of deep encounter across space and time, across Spain and Morocco, across the bridge between past and present, through these two musical traditions that are being brought together on stage. Uh, Moroccan Andalusian music that's represented by Shakata and his ensemble, and the flam flamenco music that's represented by the Spanish ensemble that's led, as you said, by Enrique Morente, one of the most famous flamenco vocalists of his day. So in this clip that we've just seen, the two ensembles that which have actually been separated on two parts of the stage for most of the show, at this point have finally started to come together in this moment of union, of deep encounter that is promised to us by the work's title. And the, the kind of initiation of this encounter or the enactment of this encounter uh, happens through this musical exchange between the two vocalists that we've heard singing in the clip. So on the one hand, Enrique Morente singing in Spanish, and on the other hand, Abdesadik Shakata singing in Arabic. So Morente, um, he originally sings 
uh, lines that I would translate as a man has his brother in another man whose hands are just as clean as his. He then passes the baton uh, to Shakata, who begins singing in Arabic. And actually what he's singing in Arabic is a poem from Al-Andalus, a very famous poem from Al-Andalus. It's uh, a 14th century poem by the Granadan poet Ibn al-Khatib. It's the poem uh, that's called Jadik al-Baythu in, in Arabic. And it's a poem in which the speaker spe- longs for a moment of connection, a time of union in Al-Andalus. Yazman al-Wasl al-Andalusi is the most famous line in the poem, O time of union in Al-Andalus. And so we can think of this as a poem from Al-Andalus that's talking about a potential separation from Al-Andalus and a longing for connection with it. And this, this famous poem from Al-Andalus is revived precisely in the context of this late 20th century show in which two musical forms, themselves here to be thought of as part of the legacy of Al-Andalus, are brought together after a kind of long uh, separation. Now, even if all that uh, wouldn't have been legible to all members of the audience, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about Makama Honda is that it works differently on different audiences, right? Like, mm-hmm. even if you don't know that's an Ibn al-Khatib poem, you might recognize that somewhere in the poem he says Al-Andalus. And even if you don't recognize that, you might notice that something about a Moroccan singing in Arabic using melesma, which is this vocal ornamentation technique, in a way that mirrors the melesma performance of uh, Enrique Morente, says something about the marriage and potentially even the relationship of these two musical forms. So you see this kind of exchanges of words that are meant to represent the marriage or reunion of these two cultural traditions that both claim descent from Andalus. And you see it by the exchange of, of words between the, the two musicians. Now, in the last part of the, of the clip, after Shakara sings in Arabic, he actually hands the baton or hands the mic, as it were, back to Morente, who revives those, those say, he reprises those same words. He says, a man has his brother and another man whose his hands are just as clean as his. And then he starts to sing Hermano, brother with these long, elongated notes, uh, using that technique of melesma that's common to both North African Andalusian music and flamenco. Eventually, Shakata joins in and sings in Spanish, hermano, brother, alongside Morente. And then all of the Spanish and Moroccan musicians on stage join together to sing hermano, brother. So at first blush, this is, in some sense, a kind of beautiful moment, right? In which uh, Spanish and Moroccan musicians are celebrating their common heritage by using a family language, this language of brotherhood, to talk about the ways in which two of their cherished cultural practices, in this case, flamenco on the Spanish side and Andalusia on the Moroccan side, are both part of one family tree whose roots extend back to Andalus. Mm-hmm. And we could just kind of stop there, right? We could say, right. okay, this is how music revives Andalus, like late 20th century, jumping back to the Middle Ages. That is how Andalus is working there. Unfortunately, the story is a bit more complicated than that, because this idea of brotherhood, this idea of Spaniards and Moroccans being joined in a trans-historical brotherhood that is rooted in Al-Andalus, was actually one of the most common metaphors of Spanish colonial discourse in Morocco. Like one of the primary justifications that Spanish apologists, apologists for Spanish colonialism had, was this idea that Spanish colonialism was actually not colonialism at all, but instead just the revival of this historical brotherhood between Spaniards and Moroccans, both of whom descended from Al-Andalus. And actually, hermandad, brotherhood, was probably the most common trope in Spanish colonial texts. 
So what you have in Makama Honda is this really common, uh, this really complicated thing, right? Where you have late 20th century musicians reviving words from Al-Andalus, the poem from Ibn al-Khatib, and using the legacy of Al-Andalus to celebrate some kind of message of intercultural unity in the present. But doing so, drawing on uh, metaphors that originated in the colonial context, and actually doing so also drawing on artistic networks that originated in the colonial context. Because something that I also try to show in, in the work is that although people commonly refer to Makama Honda as the first flamenco fusion project, there were actually a lot of attempts to do this in Spanish colonial Morocco, to bring together Spanish flamenco musicians and Moroccan Andalusian musicians under the, uh, the banner of thinking of them as musical traditions of Andalus. And so wow. the question, the kind of provocation I have about this clip is, what do we do with it? Like, what do we do with the complex form of historical memory that's at work here? Is mm -hmm. it possible to celebrate the legacy of Al-Andalus while relying on the language of colonialism? Or put differently, like, can you use ideas that first originated in the service of colonialism in the service of something productive today? And if so, how do you do it? So mm -hmm. that's the kind of historical demand that I think that this music makes on us? Like, how do we listen to the different layers of history that are embedded in it? We wanted to play you uh, one more clip from Makanda Honda. We're going to continue right after we left off. And uh, let's listen to the very end uh, of this show. Now, in this clip, we have those same two singers actually mixing two different songs, uh, one from Morocco and the other from Spain. So what are these songs and why has this mix had such an influence on subsequent uh, Spanish-Moroccan collaborations? Yeah. All right. So what we just listened to is actually the finale, right? The very last song in Makama Fonda. Mm -hmm. And it's also the most famous part of the show. Uh, in the very last part of the show, after the Moroccan musicians and Spanish musicians have come together, there's this scene called Encuentro, meeting, that is also represented by a marriage that's happening on stage because there's also a plot to this show. It's uh, the story of a marriage between a Moroccan woman and a Spanish man who are dancing together in the scene on stage. 
And to this scene in which the musicians uh, have come together like two families celebrating uh, this joyous union or marriage, you have a joining or marriage of two songs. Uh, on the Spanish side, a song called La Tarara, and on the Moroccan side, a song called Bint Biledi, or Daughter of My Country, or Daughter of My Land. And this mashup of these two songs, La Tarara and Bint Biladi, is really, I would say, like the most significant gift that Makama Honda has given to the whole project of flamenco fusion, because I've heard it in so many different contexts, in so many different iterations and recordings. It's, it's a kind of standard that you almost have to do if you're practicing this form of flamenco fusion. And in fact, one of the first times I ever encountered this song is actually not in Spain or in Morocco, but actually in Chicago. Uh, I went to Chicago to hear the Palestinian-American musician Ronnie Malley do his stage show called The Andalusian Trail, which is a sort of musical homage and performance of the musical heritage of Andalus. And in that show, one of the songs that he performs is this mix-up in Spanish and Arabic, or this mashup of mm -hmm. La Tarada and Bint Biladi. So it was through him and many other artists who I heard performing this that I kind of eventually made my way back to the origin of how these two songs came together. Uh, and in fact, many people perform it now without even knowing where it comes from, but it actually comes from Makama Honda. So why? Why these two songs? First of all, I think they just sound really good together. <laughs> you know, so, they do, sometimes, yeah. sometimes, sometimes songs become famous because they just work. Uh, I think some of the rhythmic uh, schemes of the nuba, which is the sweet form that makes up Andalusian music, don't always match up that well onto flamenco music. And so you get a little bit of dissonance. But in this case, Shakata, what he's bringing to the table is in fact not a song from the Andalusi repertoire. He's not, unlike in the previous scene where he's actually singing a poem from El Andalus and singing a melody that is associated with the Andalusi repertoire in Morocco. Here, in fact, he's singing a very modern song. He's singing one of the popular Moroccan tunes that he kind of most famously collected and adapted and popularized in his career in the 20th century. Shakata, uh, the Moroccan musician, was known for kind of two sides. On the one hand, performing this music associated with El Andalus, and on the other hand, performing this, this much more recent, modern, popular music, Shabi, or popular music is called in Moroccan, of which Bint Biladi is perhaps one of the most, one of the most famous. So on the, you might just say, like, and then on the Spanish side, I should say La Tarada itself also has a really interesting history because this is a song, a folk song that was famously collected and revived by Federico Garcia Lorca uh, in the 1930s. He uh, collected it and set it to music and performed on piano on, on one of the first uh, earliest recordings of this song. So you have on the one hand, this very old Spanish folk song that was revived by Spanish poet Garcia Lorca, who's famously associated with Southern Spain and who famously celebrated Southern Spain's Muslim and Andalusian heritage. And on the other hand, you have this recent, very recent folk song that was adapted by a Moroccan musician who specializes in Moroccan Andalusian music. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is that the most famous part of this show, Makama Honda, which is what we listen to, is probably the one that musically is most distant from El Andalus. Neither of the parts of that mashup make any claim on coming directly from El Andalus. But they do, I think, speak to the song's central theme, which is that all or most of the popular music traditions of Spain and Morocco in some ways claim some descent or, or are descended from the musical heritage of El Andalus. So even when Shakata is no longer singing lyrics that are directly lifted from a 14th century Andalusian poem, 
in some sense, I think the song is not is nodding to something that's much more less about the Andalusian past and much more about hearing the music of the present, which is that the popular music musical traditions of today are in some way uh, part of the long musical heritage of Andalus. So I think that's in both because they sound good and also because I think that's one of the claims the show is making. That's why the musicians end up on this mashup of a folk song from Spain associated with Lorca and a folk song from Morocco associated with uh, Abzusadik Shikata. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it, what's always interesting to me is that if you have some kind of fusion like this, that it can kind of take a life of its own and in in this case to inspire other artists. So it's almost less about the, the past they're trying to describe and more about what they create. It's actually what they did in that moment. They wound up having the, the legacy going forward. Yeah. And also if I can just add in real sure. quick here. So one of the things I did for my book is I created a Spotify playlist to highlight some of the music I talk about in the, in the book. And maybe you could even, if you don't mind, like adding the link to that playlist in the, in the episode notes. And one of the things I have in that playlist are um, Lorca's recording of the of this song, Abdusadik Shakata playing the song alone in Arabic, and then what the song sounds like when the two are mashed together in this performance, Makamakonda. So maybe uh, if, 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 if the listeners want to know more about the history of this song, they can go to the playlist and listen to those songs separately. Oh yeah, well, we'll definitely include that. That's a that's a great playlist. And I should also mention we did a previous episode on flamenco with uh, Sandy Olguin. Listeners might be interested in listening to that one as well because we we also refer to some of those efforts by people like Federico Garcia Lorca to collect some of these uh, songs from the Spanish uh, folk tradition. I want to turn to a very different piece now, and this is by Amina. Aloui, who is a Moroccan-born singer who's lived in Europe since the 1980s. And um, here, we're going to listen to a clip of her rendition of Las Marias de Jaén from her 2001 album, Arco Iris. Cristianas, queremos mora. Queramos moras en Jaén Aisha, Fátima y Mariem Okay, so could you tell us a little about what Aloe is setting out to achieve in this album, Arco Iris in particular, and what's the significance of this song, Las Morias de Jaén, that we just listened to, and uh, especially the last lines um, of the song that, that we heard in that clip. So Aloe, Amina Aloe, is a distinguished performer of the North African art music that's commonly known as Hernati or Granadin, which is, I would say, like one of the branches of a larger tradition of music that is known by the umbrella term Andalusian music. So she's largely working in that same tradition in Shakata. But like Shakata, the Moroccan musician we heard in the last clip, she has branched out and done a lot of these collaborations with uh, European musicians and in particular with Iberian musicians. Something also really interesting about Aloui that I'll say just to set up this clip is that she's not only a distinguished performer, but is also a really interesting scholar of music. She often 
uh, accompanies her her uh, albums with these really interesting essays at the beginning of the liner notes explaining what she thinks the albums are doing. And she's also published in peer-reviewed journals about the history of Mediterranean and Iberian music. So she's someone who has a kind of, a, I kind of think of her, her career where the writing and the music go hand in hand to build a thesis. And what is that thesis? I think the thesis or idea that drives her work is basically the idea that music and songs form a bridge uh, that unites the past and the present, the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa, and the various peoples and faiths of the Mediterranean. Uh, you get a lot of ideas of music as a bridge between peoples and musics in uh, Alawi's music, uh, such that, for example, her first solo album was called Alcantara, which in some ways is just the Arabic word for bridge, Alcantara, but also is a kind of play on words because it has the Spanish verb for sing in it, cantar. So she translated that that title as Bridge of Song. And I think Bridge of Song might be one way of understanding what Aloe is doing. She's trying to build these bridges of song, connecting these different musical traditions together. Now, one of them, and this is the one that you could probably hear most prominently here, is a, is a bridge or a marriage that we've heard before, which is North African vocalist with flamenco music. And some of that is, is at play in the track that we just listened to. Um, but a thing that she's brought in that was not, I uh, say, uh, is, is more unique or is a kind of newer contribution is that she's also been really interested in is incorporating Portuguese fado into these into these conversations. She thinks as fado, like flamenco, as one of those Iberian musical forms that is part of the Andalusian musical heritage and that was created by displaced Spanish Muslims sometime after the fall of Granada. So in this sense, she's very much drawing on earlier 20th century ideas. I'm thinking particularly of Blas Infante about the idea that flamenco's origins go back to the displacement of Muslims after the fall of Andalus. This is a theory that I talk about in my book. She draws on those theories and kind of adds fado to the story, which is why in the track that we just heard, you hear um, a fado musician who's actually playing the mandolin, adding a slightly different resonance to what is like fundamentally a flamenco song. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the music angle, but I think you also want to know about the lyrics angle. So, uh, so this is a song that comes from an album called Arco Iris, which I would describe as a kind of thesis album in the sense that it's an album that's built on this idea of music and song being a bridge between the cultures and peoples of the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa. Mm -hmm. And in it, Amina Alawi sings songs in Arabic, in Spanish, in Portuguese, and she performs like different arrangements of lyrics by a number of different uh, Iberian authors, both Muslim and Christian. So you have everything from uh, like El Motabid ibn Abad, an 11th century Andalusi poet, to Teresa de Avila, the Christian mystic, uh, providing lyrics for this song. In this case, in the track that we're listening to, oh, Las Morillas de Jaén, it's actually not a song that has an identified author, but has a really interesting backstory. And it's a backstory that I think is directly uh, related to Alui's thesis or the idea that drives this album. Mm -hmm. So this poem, the Morillas de Cayenne, the Moorish girls from Cayenne, is actually descends from an Arabic poem that a number of scholars of Arabic literature have, have done the work. Luckily, I didn't have to do, uh, do it because I think it's a really fascinating story. But over time, a few scholars have pieced together the story of this basically be a, a poem that originated in ninth century Iraq 
uh, in Arabic, wow. made its way to Al-Andalus, along with a number of different poets and performers that were bringing the poetry and music of Abbasid uh, Baghdad to Umayyad Cordoba. It had a huge life in Al-Andalus, that there are a number of different poems that are kind of variants of this poem that we have uh, today, Las Tres Morillas de Cayenne, Three Moorish Girls from Cayenne. Mm-hmm. And somewhere around the 15th or the 16th century, the song seems to have made, or the poem seems to have made the leap from the Arabic language to the Spanish language, where it was eventually written down. We think probably it was first uh, translated to Spanish by one of these performers who likely lived and performed along the borders between Muslim and Christian lands uh, in 15th century Iberia. And the earliest written version of the Spanish uh, uh, song or Spanish poem is the one that we have in the Cancionero Musical de Palacio, which is this Spanish manuscript of songs from the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Now, that manuscript was rediscovered and revived in the 19th century. And actually, in the 20th century, this is uh, this particular poem which is from that uh, 15th, 16th century manuscript, was picked up again by Garcia Lorca. So here we have Lorca again, mm-hmm. and placed to music and performed on a famous album uh, with Encarnacion Lopez, who's also known by her artistic name, La Argentinita. So basically, you have the story of this poem that originated in Arabic in Iraq, traveled to El Andalus, made its way into Spanish, on the wings of performers who lived on the border between Muslim and Christian lands, and then was eventually revived and recorded in the 20th century through the work of this poet, Garcia Lorca, who very famously identified with the Southern Andalusian identity and with Spain's kind of long-standing Muslim heritage. Now, the reason I bring wow. up this, la- this, this backstory is because I feel like the story of this poem is sort of telling the story of Aloe's whole musical project, which is like trying to find connections that have been forgotten but are there right in plain sight. Trying to find these things that actually we think of as separate traditions but are actually all mixed up. So like like the Morias de Cayenne, Aloe's music is both Iberian and North African and Middle Eastern, both in Spanish and Portuguese and in Arabic. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a reason that she's picked this particular poem to voice, to kind of articulate a larger project of musical and, and cultural connectivity. Now, in terms of that line that you were talking about, we are Christians. Uh, in the very end of the poem, she is basically vocalizing or giving voice to this dialogue between two speakers, a male speaker, presumably, who asks some girls who they are, and they say, we are Christians who used to be Moorish women from Chayen. Mm-hmm. And the reason I find this really interesting is that in this moment of the poem, which is like the poem kind of has this moment of dialogue between two speakers, presumably a kind of flirtatious exchange between a Christian man and these Muslim women, or formerly Muslim women now converted to Christianity, you have Alawi kind of voicing both sides, right? She's both the Christian man and the Muslim women. She's both the person who's now living as a Christian in Spain, but also formerly belonged to Al-Andalus. I think, I think the way that she herself is straddling these different subject positions is also representative of this kind of larger project of bridge of song that is the, the thesis that drives her music. And, and that's why I thought that this would be an interesting clip for us to discuss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's an incredible story of that song and, and how it's survived in so many different forms for hundreds of years. Right, so we have one last uh, clip to share with you. This is from Khalid Rodriguez, who goes by Khalid, and he's a Spanish rapper of Moroccan descent. So let's listen to the opening of his track, Bolando Recto. 
خالد الو وفينك يا صاحبي؟ اسمح لنا واه شو ما عليك يا زبي ومن الصباح وانا تنتسنى انا عارف وانا عدي نص ديالتك اسمح لنا اسمح لنا Yo todo lo que tengo me lo merezco. No quiero favores porque a mí me sobran huevos. Esto gastarrano pa moderno. Me voy a comprar un hierro pa quitar su temedio. Vaya cabato muerto. Okay, so can you tell us a bit, uh, Eric, about how Khalid mixes Arabic and Spanish? We heard both of those languages there. And also how he incorporates um, an identification with his own hometown of Granada in this music. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we're having a chance uh, to talk about this clip because it allows me to talk about a really different kind of a musical evocation of Oanus, right? Right, like yeah. right now, uh, right up up until now, we've been talking about musicians who play in traditions that they link or that they understand to be linked directly to Oanus. So flamenco, fado, Andalusian music, Granati. That kind of claim can't really be made for hip hop, right? I, I, I like I don't think Khalid or other hip hop artists are saying explicitly they rapped in El Andalus just like I rap now. And right. yet, surprisingly, there's just this huge range of allusions to El Andalus uh, throughout contemporary hip hop. Um, really, I've found examples from the U.S. scene, from European rap, from North African rap. It's a huge phenomenon. Uh, but in the book, I really try to focus more densely on the ways in which Al-Andalus is being evoked in rap from roughly the Strait of Gibraltar region. So like Moroccan and Spanish rappers, including uh, Spanish rappers of Moroccan descent. And that would be the case uh, of Khalid. I talk about a few Khalid songs in the book. Uh, it would be wonderful if in the episode notes, if you could include the link for the video for Bolando Recto, because I think it's also really interesting. And maybe I can say something about the visuals. But just to mention uh, the clip that we just started, uh, mm -hmm. basically we start with a recording of what appears to be a, a conversation, a phone conversation between Khalid and another speaker, unidentified. They're speaking in Moroccan Arabic, uh, and one of the speakers uh, seems to be chastising Khalid because he said, I've, I've been waiting for you all, all day. Where have you been, man? We're here waiting for you. Khalid's like, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then he, and then he switches to Spanish and starts rapping. Now, what's significant about this? The code switching practice is something that's really significant about Khalid's uh, rapping. He does a lot of switching, particularly between Moroccan Arabic and Spanish, though he'll often also incorporate kind of punch words in French or in, Ara or in English. And actually, in this clip, we actually got an English word as well. I don't know if you caught that. He said, I believe, esto no es gangsta rap, no es pa molenos. Like, this is not gangster <laughs> rap, or this is gangster rap. It's not for maybe like hipsters, modernos. The reason I bring this up is that it's very interesting. You see Khalid using this English word to signal his familiarity with U.S. hip hop culture. So in some ways, he's sort of uh, inserting himself in a black Atlantic imaginary, uh, associating himself with like black popular culture from the U.S. And at the same time, this, this video is also showing the ways in which Khalid is also inserted within very different and other spatial and temporal imaginaries that maybe you don't get in U.S. hip-hop. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them, of course, is uh, the relationship between Spain and Morocco that's quite contemporary, um, both because Khalid himself is the son of a Moroccan immigrant and often, uh, often talks about that immigration experience and often raps in Moroccan Arabic, 
also because he incorporates this phone conversation with another Moroccan in Moroccan Arabic in the beginning of the track. And so we're already seeing something about the mixing of language, saying something about how he understands his cultural framework. But then he does this other thing, which isn't going to come out in the clip, which is why I wanted maybe if, if the listeners could take a look at the video, which is that most of the time in this video, Khaled is standing on the Sacro Monte, which is a neighborhood on the hills above downtown Granada that's often associated with Gitano or Roma culture and also with flamenco performance. So you see him giving a kind of a shout out to flamenco, but he's rapping in front of the Alhambra. The, the Alhambra appears illuminated in the background almost as a sort of stage or frame that gives meaning to his performance. And so what you get in this song is this like really interesting way in which hip-hop evocations of Al-Andalus are both signaling some kind of connection to or awareness of U.S. hip-hop culture through incorporation of phrases like gangster rap, sometimes explicit allusions to U.S. hip-hop artists, but at the same time, they're using that culture to refer to much more to, to kind of recent political developments in Spain, in this case, Moroccan immigration to Spain. And at the same time, they're associating that phenomenon with a much deeper history of migration across the Strait of Gibraltar through this kind of very explicit visual allusion to the Alhambra. Um, mm. You know, this, the allusions to Andalus are a little bit, uh, are just visual. They're not lyrical necessarily uh, in this song, unless you consider Khaled's code-switching practice as a way of kind of embodying Al-Andalus in language. But mm -hmm. there are other songs where he alludes to Al-Andalus much more explicitly. Uh, in one of his most famous songs, which is called Los Foren, or like the foreign, with the English word foreign, he he, he declares, Al-Andalus is my race. Al-Andalus es mi raza. And, and I, I kind of spend some time in the book trying to think through what does it mean for Khalid uh, to claim Al-Andalus as a race? Is that just about his uh, kind of the, the fact that he's the son of a marriage between a uh, Moroccan mother and a Spanish father? Or does it say something larger about how he understands his position in Spanish society? As, as I'm framing this, you can probably tell that I think he's actually saying something larger. I think he's using Al-Andalus as a sort of stance of resistance that allows him not only to think about his minoritized position, ethnic, uh, uh, kind of from a position of ethnicity or national place of origin, but he's also kind of exp uh, expressing solidarity with other marginalized groups in Spain. He often has short shout outs to the urban poor, to recent migrants to Spain, to speakers of other languages living in Spain. So I see here El Andalus being evoked not only as a specific reference to the very rooted ways in which recent migrants, particularly Muslim migrants to Spain, have a long, are, are kind of tapping into a long past in Spain, but also using El Andalus to kind of assert a minoritarian position that is in solidarity and that cuts across a lot of different groups, uh, be that uh, socioeconomically marginalized groups, uh, groups that are racially or ethnically marked, religious, religious minorities, and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I use Howard's uh, music at the end of that chapter to both talk about the hip hop of Andalus and also to talk about different ways in which Al Andalus is allowing for a sort of intersectional mode of critique in uh, contemporary Spanish music. You've identified a really w wide ranging uh, multitude of different uses of this concept of Al Andalus. Is there anything that they all have in common? Or just to kind of put it in another way, why is it that this medieval entity captures the imagination of so many different groups uh, from around the Mediterranean and even beyond in the present day? 
Yeah, thanks for that question, and, and mm-hmm. I agree. It's an it's a it's a good way for us to conclude this this conversation. So two things: one having to do with analytical approach, uh, and the other having to do with the diverse diversity of cultural responses to Alandalus. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, on this on on how I approach analytically the problem of Alandalus, I think a lot of people the, the problem I was actually trying to avoid was to collapse Alandalus into one thing give it a kind of a singular meaning that then I had to fit all of these different cultural traditions into. Because I actually, I actually think that one of the most interesting things that Al-Andalus can teach us is that it actually means very different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And that one way to understand Al-Andalus is to understand that other people might understand it differently. So if, if anything, I, I treat Al-Andalus in, in this book as a sort of exercise in living with contradiction in living with historical memories that actually don't have resolved meanings and that it's precisely in dwelling on their contradictions and on their lack of resolution that we're going to learn the greatest lesson, I think. And so that's, that's yeah. the, as analytical approach, I'm actually trying to avoid uh, uh, asserting one monolithic Andalus and in some sense uh, uh, kind of present the multiverse of, mm-hmm. of, of Andalus. That, that, that was kind of how I went about thinking about this book. The second thing that has to do with the diversity of traditions, cultural traditions, national traditions that have built on, or have drawn on Andalus as a memory, because uh, that was part of your question as well. Yeah. I think part of the lasting appeal and the, uh, the reason that the appeal of Al-Andalus is so widespread is that it allows us to question boundaries that we might have start to th- we might start to think of as fixed boundaries, like really simple boundaries that actually upon closer inspection are not so simple. Like mm-hmm. the idea that Europe, Africa and Asia are distinct unities, uh, y- y- distinct entities and should be studied separately. Or that Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are these distinct religious spheres that need to be separated. Or that, or that the best way to approach the literary humanities is to divide things up into language. Arabic studies goes here. Spanish studies goes there. Hebrew studies go there. And to kind of silo off these moments in which these things are brought together in messy but productively messy ways. And so I think mm-hmm. part of the reason why people avoid Al-Andalus is that it confounds these categories that have very much structured the circulation of knowledge in the universities. It, 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 Al-Andalus doesn't fit easily in a Spanish department or an Arabic department or a Middle East studies department. And yet very few people, if you see a job listing for European history, the first thing that comes to mind is not necessarily Al-Andalus. And that's because there's some built-in assumptions about who is and isn't, who doesn't, who doesn't fit into the paradigm of European history. And so what mm-hmm. I find productive about Al-Andalus is the ways in which it allows us to both identify and challenge some of these categories that have become hardened in our academic practice. And I also think that that helps to explain why so many people continue to find meaning in it, because it also allows people around the world to challenge the status quo and to imagine other ways of belonging, other ways of affiliation, other ways of understanding their relationship to the past. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Yeah, and it, it certainly got me a lot more to think about what is my idea of Al-Andalus and, and where does that actually come from? How might others see it uh, in a different light? So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this work that you've done. Thank you so much, Foster. That's really kind. Again, it's such an honor to be back on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation, and I hope we'll have another chance to talk soon.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. 